are you this morning? Amen. We're going to cover another ordinance of the church. We took a little break from the series on the miracles of Jesus. And uh, last time we were to ke- together, we talked about the ordinances of the church. Get your Bible in your hand. We're going to thank God for the word. We're going to learn some things this morning. We talked about water baptism last week. There's an opportunity to sign up and do that. I encourage you to get signed up if you're a believer and you've accepted Jesus, but you haven't then got in the waters of baptism. It's what the Bible teaches. Believe, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it's a believer's baptism. I encourage you, next Sunday, November 14th, we're going to have water baptisms. We've got a lot of people signed up already, but there's more room in the tub. So let's be obedient to the Lord. Amen. Um, Father, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for what it teaches us to do and not to do for the ordinances of the church. Father, we pray that as we're obedient to these things, you release a blessing to us. Lord Jesus, help us to not be hearers of the word, but doers, to mix uh, when we hear the word our faith and obedience and then to see fruit produced in our lives. I pray that each of us would get something from you today that we could take home with us and live out on Monday. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we said an ordinance of the church was something that the Bible instructs us to do, commanded us to practice it. It wasn't a one-time thing, but it was something that is good, solid theology and doctrine uh, that the church is to practice throughout the ages. Last time we were together, we talked about the seven most practiced ordinances. Some denominations say there are as many as 20 or 27. Some have seven sacraments. There's all different ways to express these things. But here, the seven that are practiced in the New Testament church are these, the Lord's Supper, water baptism. Uh, Those are the two most common, the two most vital. Then there's anointing the six. James 5 tells us what? We're supposed to get out the Holy Ghost olive oil, amen, and anoint the sick with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. That's what the Bible says. So that's an ordinance of the church here. This is not just for making, you know, good Italian dishes. This is oil that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, we're told to anoint the sick with oil. Come on, look at me like you understand what I'm saying. Amen? Okay, so so you're going to put oil on me? I'm leaving this church. It's crazy here. The Bible tells us to do that. Also, it tells us to lay hands. That's the fourth ordinance. Uh, You see in Scripture, they laid hands on people, appointed them to ministry, confirmed the work of the Holy Spirit in them. We lay hands on our college students when they leave to go to college. We lay hands on missionaries when they go to the mission field. It's biblical. It's what the church is supposed to do. It's an ordinance of the church. Also, assembling of ourselves together. You're in church today, and the Bible tells us that we should do that, that we shouldn't forsake the the assembling of ourselves together so much more as we see the day approaching, amen? So you're not here just because you're a religious or a super Christian. You're here because this morning we're told to be here as an ordinance of the church. Sunday is the Lord's Day. It's the day that we get together together. We use our gifts, we give, we hear the word, we worship together. What a beautiful time. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Amen. Also, we talked about foot washing, and we said that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He took a basin and a towel. He got down. He washed their feet. He said, because I've washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. Now, before you get too nervous and think it's going to get all weird in here, Washing each other's feet is more than just the literal act of doing that, although there are times where that's appropriate. It's really serving one another. 
And we should serve one another. If we see a brother or sister who's in need and we can help, we should help. Someone say amen. We shouldn't just leave church on Sunday, go off to our own family compounds, lock the door and hide from each other. Hello, American church. Hello. Right? We should serve one another, help one another. It's, it's part of what the body of Christ does, and it's part of what foot washing means. The last ordinance was the Christian greeting. The New Testament gives three types of greeting, greeting by name, greeting by the right hand of fellowship, and greeting with a holy kiss. So we should greet one another. We should, you know, offer each other, um, you know, the connection that comes from being part of the family of God. These are the ordinances that are most practiced. Now, we've got an opportunity November 14th to come and be water baptized. Please take advantage of that with the whole COVID thing and all the shutdowns and all the people, you know, kind of being not here and afraid. We've had to postpone a lot of that. So there's a lot of people that need to be baptized in water because people get saved at Full Gospel Center almost every week. Amen. And that's an awesome thing. So take advantage. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the Lord's Supper. And the first thing I want to cover is who instituted the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And quite simply, the answer is it wasn't the Roman church or the Orthodox church or the Protestant church or whatever church, the evangelical church. No, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Amen. How many understand when Jesus says to do it, we don't have to pray about it. We need to just do it. Amen. Uh, he's, He's... instructed his disciples to to do exactly what we're going to do here this morning. And we're going to talk about that. But I want to say this. Everything we do as Christians must be rooted in God's word. And it should be seen practiced throughout church history. If they did it in the early church under the apostles' direction that had been with Jesus, we should be doing it in the New Testament church now. I know it's a different time. It's modern. Technology has increased. But listen to me, there are certain ordinances that we should do, and being baptized in water is one, and coming to the Lord's table is one. Now, we can all have opinions and preferences and traditions, uh, but we have no grounds to to force other people to comply with those things. Neither should we portray our own opinions, preferences, and traditions as anything more than what they are. They're not dogma. They're not theology. Amen. There are preferences. There are opinions. If you go to a church in a different country, their worship music is going to sound different. They, they may sing different songs. If you go to church down in Texas, it's going to be different than it is in Atlanta, than it is in New York. Amen? We have differences in methodology. Thank God that it's not all the same. Amen? Something scary about churches that try to be all the same and let's all preach the same text on Sunday morning and let's follow the missalette and let's do And it just gets a little bit constrictive for the Holy Spirit to move. And so, you know, we can have preferences and opinions, but they are not the things that we make ordinances out of. They are not what we make doctrine out of. They're just our preferences and our opinions. But Jesus himself instituted the Lord's table in Luke 22, 15 through 19. He said this, and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I, for I say to you, I will not eat or drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
So Jesus himself institutes the Lord's table at the Last Supper. We've all seen the beautiful paintings of it, right? We, we get this. And it was his idea. So uh, Jesus instituted it, but also not as important, but importantly, it was the apostles' doctrine in the early church. Remember, the teachings of men don't ever over, overwhelm or, or sit higher than the teachings of God. The traditions of men are not to nullify the word of God. Someone say amen. But yet the apostles did this in the early church. Um, so because Jesus said, Jesus said it and the apostles did it, there's something very, very powerful about the start of anything. What they did in the early church is what we should be doing in the modern church. Someone say amen. Now, I know we have, you know, big screens, skinny jeans, and smoke machines in our churches now. But that doesn't mean we should stop doing what the apostles did. In fact, Acts 2, 41 through 43 says this, For they gladly received this word and were baptized. And that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So the gospels preached, 3,000 people get saved, boom, you got a megachurch right out of the box. And there's all these people there. What, is it, what happens in 42? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread, that means coming to the Lord's table, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So the apostles had been with Jesus. They implemented the, uh, the ordinances of the early church. They practiced these things, and one of the things they practiced was the Lord's table. So Jesus said it. The early church did it. It was part of the apostles' doctrine. And number three, the apostle Paul affirmed the, pa the proper execution of the Lord's table. You remember the apostle Paul goes out and he basically evangelizes the Gentiles. Now, what were the Gentiles? The, if you're not Jewish, then all the rest of us are Gentiles. And they were heathen and they were wild and they had all kinds of crazy beliefs. And Paul comes and he institutes the proper way to have communion. Now, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 30, uh, the Corinthians were a wild group, and they had, they had come to the Lord's table, and they were doing love feasts, and they had kind of strayed off course to the point where people were coming together, and when you're supposed to have communion, they were getting drunk. They were eating fancy food in front of poor people and not sharing. They were doing all kinds of crazy things, and Paul's like, ah, oh, you guys, you're nuts. You've missed the mark. And so he, he's, he begins to speak to them, and he says some of this here. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. So you see, communion is a serious thing. 
And it's not something to be taken lightly. And, you know, some of us have come out of very religious backgrounds. And now that, you know, we're evangelicals or charismaniacs or whatever you think you are here today, you can smile. It's okay. You know, we think, well, you know, everything is just we can be relaxed and we don't have to. We can kind of just, you know, and there needs to be a little bit of reverence. There needs to be a little bit of self-examination. We're going to talk of that uh, as we as this message unfolds. But before I tell you what the, the real purpose of the Lord's table is, I want to tell you three things that the Lord's table is not. Sometimes, you know, the, the religious or the theological baggage we have coming from different backgrounds needs to be uh, kind of untangled before we can, you know, practice the ordinances of the church in light of the truth of Scripture. Now, the first thing that the Lord's table is not, it's not how you join the church or become part of the body of Christ. Only Pastor Mike believes me. Come into the Lord, say, well, that, when, you know, churches will say, well, that's how you become part of our church. You have, we baptize you, then we stuff communion in you, and now you're, part, you're this denomination. That's not how you become part of a church. That's not how you become part of the body of Christ. You become part of the family of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can come to a church, you can take communion, you can go through all of what the ceremony they do. But listen to me, you don't become part of the family of God until you have Jesus on the throne of your heart and he's your savior and your Lord. So communion, first holy communion, communion class, all of these things that, you know, they do in ceremony and tradition, it doesn't make you part of the family of God, doesn't make you part of the body of Christ. Uh, number two, the second thing the Lord's table is not, it's not how you receive salvation, absolution, or sanctification. When we come to the Lord's table and you take communion and, you know, you, you connect with Jesus, that doesn't save you. Try it again. I thought it did. No, well, it doesn't. The only thing, again, that saves you, and I keep going back to this, is it's a relationship with Jesus Christ, amen? That's what saves you. It, it, it's not that, well, I, I went and had a sacrimony or a ceremony, or they dipped me, or they dunked me, or they fed me communion, and now I'm a Christian. No, that's not the way it works. Some of us have been taught that. Some of us think that. It's not absolution. It's not like, well, when I take communion, now I'm cleansed of all my sins, the blood of Jesus does that. Only the blood of Jesus does that. Amen. The Lord's table was not meant to do that. We're going to talk about what it's meant to do, but it's not salvation. It's not absolution. It's, it's not sanctification. Well, now I had holy communion, so I'm holy. It's, you know, it's in me now. No, sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit. It comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit works on us to conform us to the image of Jesus. Amen. You say, well, what are you, pastor? I'm a building under construction. He's working on me, amen? You say, well, you look like a building I wouldn't want to live in. Well, that's fine. The Holy Ghost lives in me, and he's working on me, and I'm not done yet, and neither are you. <laughs> so the Lord's table is not how you become part of the family of God. It's not salvation. It's not absolution. It's not instant sanctification. And, and number three, the Lord's table is not the actual body and blood of Jesus. Some of us have been taught this. Well, you know, it's just bread and it's just wine. But when you pray over it, it actually becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. It still looks like bread, but it's his flesh. It still tastes like juice, but it's actually his blood. Now it's quiet. 
And that's not at all what the Bible teaches. In fact, there are two doctrines that have confused the church, and I want to talk to you about them this morning. There's the doctrine that's found in the Roman church and the Orthodox church, and in some Protestant sects, the doctrine of transubstantiation. And the doctrine of transubstantiation hinges on a, a theological idea called perpetual sacrifice. So strap on your thinking caps this morning. We're going to get some thick theology going here. I've got seven points of why we do not accept the doctrine of transubstantiation. Number one, if this actually, these elements actually became the actual body and blood of Jesus, when Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, he would actually have to be holding himself in his own hands and eating and drinking his own flesh, according to the gospel account. He would literally be pulling pieces of himself off and his, spilling his blood if it was his actual body and blood. Does this make sense to anybody that Jesus would hold up a cup and bread and say, this is now actually me? Come on, if you believe that, there's other science fiction that I can talk to you about you know maybe you like star trek too i don't know but this is not what jesus was saying you see bible scholars and those who use good hermeneutics and have accurate bible interpretation know when something in scripture is literal and when it's symbolic and when you can't tell the difference between literal and symbolic you come up with some goofy theology and transubstantiation is exactly that number two christ's blood would have literally had to have been spilled before the crucifixion until Jesus died on the cross, listen, there was no covering for sin. They used animal skins or prayers or ceremonial things, but that was a band-aid. Listen, when Jesus actually spilt his blood, that's when sin was broken and the veil was torn in two, and now we can be cleansed and forgiven. But this whole idea that he actually poured himself out and he's given his body and his blood before the crucifixion doesn't make sense, and, it, and it's not scriptural. Number three, Christ's literal physical body would have to be in millions of places at once to facilitate the church celebrating communion in different locations. It's Sunday morning. It's the Lord's Day. Communion is happening in millions of places around the world. How can a finite physical body be in all of those places? It's impossible. Now you say, well, he's spiritual. But he didn't say eat my spirit and eat my soul. He said my flesh and my blood. Now let me, let me track with you on this here of what theology take some digging here. Uh, number four is that, you know, a true finite body cannot be in multiple places at once. Suggesting that Jesus didn't have a literal physical body at the Last Supper is heresy, and it's the heresy of Gnosticism, which says Jesus didn't have a literal body. He was a spirit. And so listen, if he was just a spirit, this heresy of Gnosticism in the early church, he could, you can't crucify a spirit and break the power of sin because it was that sinful flesh that he inherited when he was born of Mary that allowed him to live a perfect life and kill it on the cross and break the power of sin. So if Jesus was just Casper the friendly ghost, then his death on the cross, come on, it's okay, you can laugh in church. His death on the cross didn't break the power of sin. Saying that Jesus didn't have a literal physical body, that he was just spirit, is Gnosticism. And Paul thoroughly dismantled Gnosticism throughout his epistles in the early church. Now let's look at number five. It's inhumane and immoral to eat human flesh. Never in Judaism or in Christianity have Christians been clear to eat human flesh, and the apostles specifically forbid the Gentiles 
when they converted to Christianity from drinking blood. Why? Because drinking blood is thoroughly pagan. It's linked to the occult and paganism, and it has nothing to do with Christianity. Jesus said to the crowd, to the multitude, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And what did they do? They freaked out, and they, and they ran away, and they dispersed. And he let them believe that because they were there for the wrong reasons, and they didn't have spiritual discernment. Certainly Jesus was not saying that you have to cannibalize me and drink my blood. To believe that is thoroughly pagan. It's not Christian. It's not Judaism. It's paganism. And so here we go. We, we got this idea of eating flesh and drinking blood. The apostles said no drinking blood to the Gentile converts. Why? Because that was their old pagan ways. Listen to Acts 15, 20. But that we write to them, these are the new converts, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. So this whole idea that it's actually human flesh and human blood, it does not jive with the rest of Scripture, with the rest of what the Bible tells us we can do, and it's just not what the text is saying. Number six, transubstantiation hinges on the unbiblical doctrine of perpetual sacrifice. What does that mean? People that say that this becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ are saying Jesus has to be crucified over and over and over again every time we have communion so that his body and blood can, you know, be given for our sins and we can take the sacrament and we can become holy. Listen, that is not at all what's happening here. In fact, that idea that Jesus has to be crucified afresh and over and over again is thoroughly unbiblical. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all time, amen? He died, he went in that tomb, he rose again, he's alive forevermore. His blood is enough to forgive and break the power of every sin, every committed for all time. Listen to Romans 6, 9, and 11 to completely refute this idea of perpetual sacrifice. Knowing that Christ had been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, that the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He died once for all, one and done. He is risen. He's alive. He doesn't have to die over and over again. Now, the last reason we don't accept this doctrine of transubstantiation is this. The Roman church, the Orthodox church, and the few Protestant churches that teach it, their scholars have had to admit it is not in the Bible. It is thoroughly church tradition and church teaching. And remember I said at the beginning as we're looking at ordinances here, we don't make church teaching or opinions or traditions the ordinance of God. We make biblical things that we're commanded to do be the ordinances of God. Amen. Somebody do something. Amen. That was good theology. And your eyes look glazed over because I know it's tough. But part of being a mature Christian is understanding some of the weightier things of Scripture. Amen. And many times we haven't been taught well enough to give answer to these things and people perpetuate theologies and ideas upon us that are thoroughly unbiblical and almost blasphemous and we don't know how to refute them and we need to. So I want to close down this message here with three things that the Lord's table is. 
I told you what it's not. Here's what it is. Number one, it's an act of obedience. Jesus said to do it. When we do it, we're being obedient to the commands of Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Amen. He said, do this in remembrance of me until I come. So I want to tell you something about obedience. Every time we're obedient to the Lord, it unlocks a blessing upon our lives. When we do what he said to do, it releases a blessing from heaven to touch our lives and to give us, you know, the peace of God. Amen. There is no substitute for obedience. We can't get up to heaven and say, well, Jesus, I did 50% of what you told me. Do you grade on a curve? And listen, salvation's a free gift. You don't earn it. We're not going to be graded. But what I'm saying is that our rewards and our pleasing the Lord and our hearing well done, good and faithful servant hinges on us being obedient to Jesus. There's no substitute for obedience today. It unlocks the blessing of heaven upon your life. It's amazing. One Christian can sit next to another in church. One can be obedient and be completely blessed, and another one can be in disobedience and be having just a hell of a time getting to heaven. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, I said it in church. Good morning. You know, it's because we're not obedient. Oh, everything goes wrong for me. Man, when, I'm, when that's me, I want to figure out what I did because I know it's not God. It's me. Amen. Every time, it hasn't been God. Oh, God, it was me. I'm sorry. Yeah, this time it was me. Obedience. The second thing the Lord's table is this. It's an act of remembrance. Jesus said in Luke 22, do this in remembrance of me. You say, well, you know, as often as you do this, you know, what you celebrate, what I've done for you on the cross, why do we need to be reminded about what Jesus did on the cross for us and how incredibly gracious he's been. It's because we can easily forget what he's done. You know, the minute we take our eyes off the Lord and we begin to just look at the things of the world around us, immediately we, we think, you know, well, we're missing out or things aren't going good. And we almost get the attitude like, Lord, what have you done for me lately? So the Lord's table is a reminder of what he's done for us, that he offered his body and his blood for us so that we didn't have to go to hell, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have the free gift of salvation. I don't know about you, but that's a lot, amen? Some days I wake up and I just, I'm just, I don't know what's going on, but I'm thankful I'm saved, and this is my last day I'm going to be with Jesus, amen? And it's not because I'm good or perfect or better than anybody else. It's all because of the body and blood that was given for me so that I could be free from sin. Amen. So it's an act of remembrance. We need to remember. We need to be reminded. We need to stay focused on him. Number three, the third thing the Lord's table is this, is it's a means of us identifying and connecting with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 uses the word communion. Uh, and this word communion translated in the Greek uh, means koinonia, which means to partner or participate or connect or fellowship. So when we have communion, we are partnering with Jesus. We're connecting with Jesus. We're fellowshipping with Jesus, and we're participating in him and what he did in giving his life. Listen to 1 Corinthians ten sixteen: The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the Lord of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So that word communion, koinonia, it means the connecting, the fellowshipping. And just as we identify with Christ 
death, burial, and resurrection in the waters of baptism, we also connect and identify with him as we come to the Lord's table. It's us saying publicly, I am who I am because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his broken body, because of his shed blood. Now I'm holy and in a right relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. Amen. Number five, hope your seatbelts are still fasting. Who should come to the Lord's table? Well, you know, many think, well, you have to be a member of the church or you have to go through a class or you have to go through a ritual. And here's the deal. Every born-again believer in right relationship with God should come to the Lord's table. As with water baptism, the only prerequisite is that you and I are saved, that you and I acknowledge who Jesus is, that we receive him as our personal Lord and Savior, and we have a relationship with him, amen? And then every one of us who are in that condition should come to the Lord's table. Now, many people throughout the years have asked, well, what about children? How old do they have to be? How smart do they have to be? How holy do they have to be? Well, the thing is with children, just as with adults, when a child is old enough to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them, and a child's old enough to understand what sin is and that they shouldn't do it, amen, they should come to the Lord's table. And that's it. Well, you say, what age is that? It's different for every kid. Some are faster and slower than others. I don't know what you got in your house, but, you know, pray about it. And I want to say something. If you come up here and you give them communion and they don't understand it, you know, a lightning bolt is not going to hit them and they're not going to, you know, God's not going to, no, God is gracious and he's merciful, amen, and he's patient. But, you know, we should all understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And whenever a child can comprehend that, then they should come to the Lord's table. I want to close with this. Who should avoid coming to the Lord's table? And people go, in our permissive generation where everybody can do anything they want because they feel like it. This might even be a strange concept that somebody should not come to the Lord's table. I know when I've been in other churches and other denominations, they flat out said, we're not going to serve you communion because you're not of our brand. If you've been there, amen. And, you know, that's a whole different issue, and they can argue about that for eternity, not in heaven. They can argue about it somewhere. You know, this whole idea of, you know, you got to be the certain denomination, you got to be baptized a certain way, all unscriptural, but whatever. You know, people want to withhold communion from others. That's fine. The only prerequisite in Scripture is that you're born again, that you're in right relationship with God. But 1 Corinthians 11.27 tells us it's possible for us to be in an unworthy state that where we should avoid taking communion. And, you know, that's a very interesting thing. It says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So there again, this is not something we do lackadaisical or flippant. We should do it reverently and soberly and in the fear of God when we come to the Lord's table. Because, you know, when we come in a way that's unworthy and we just trounce the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, it's, it's, it's incorrect, it's, it's impolite, it's rude. So what would put a person in an unworthy state? Number one, a person who refuses to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, can't just anybody of any faith or any denomination, you know, they believe Jesus was a nice guy or a good teacher or a prophet, you know, shouldn't they be able to come? No, because, 
you've got to know him in the truth of who he is, amen? You've got to know him as the only begotten son of God, as the savior of the world, the only way to God, amen? All right, you didn't like that? Number two, harboring unconfessed sin in, the, in our hearts would make us unworthy to come. There are those of us who get into situations, even as believers, where we're in sin, we're doing things God you know, his word told us not to do. We're into drug addiction, drunkenness, sexual immorality. We're doing all kinds of stuff. And, you know, uh, we got this unconfessed sin in our life. And we're like, well, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to ignore it. And I'm going to go through, you know, my little ceremonies and rituals. And I'm going to do whatever I want. That's a dangerous way to come to the Lord's table. When we are practicing known sin, we should examine ourselves and repent of it before we get here. Amen. Otherwise, we're being disrespectful to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the scripture's telling us that's an unworthy way to approach the table. Number three, when we have unforgiveness in our hearts towards others, when we, you know, someone's wronged us, mistreated us, been disrespectful to us, abused us, and we, you know, we're angry at them and we're, we're mad and we haven't forgiven them and we come to the Lord's table and we want to partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ and remember him. And the truth is, when we come that way, we are coming as the worst of hypocrites. Why? Because Jesus has forgiven us of all the rotten, sinful, disrespectful, blasphemous things that we've done, but now we won't extend that same grace to another person. Oh, it's getting quieter and quieter on every point. And the thing is, yeah, I know people mistreated you. I know they abused you. I know because they've done it to me. And the thing is, you might say, well, I didn't deserve that. And how dare they do that? And they should have never. But you know what? Jesus didn't deserve to pay for my sins either. He didn't deserve to have to be nailed to the cross for what Rick did. Amen. And so because I've accepted that free gift that he did on my behalf, I am obligated to forgive others. Look, I know sometimes they're not sorry. They don't deserve it. You know, they're, you know they would do it again. Come on, anybody... You, you know some of the same people I know. But we forgive them, not for them, not because they deserve it. We forgive them because the Lord's forgiven us. So coming with unforgiveness would be coming in a way that is unworthy. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 11.22 says this, that we must examine ourselves before we come. Listen to this. But a person must examine himself and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks and eats judgment brings judgment on himself if he does not properly recognize the body. So the prerequisites are that we're saved, and then wisdom dictates that we examine ourselves before we come. As Pastor Mike leads us in the Lord's table, before we partake, we should forgive those who have mistreated us. We should confess known sin that we're habitually practicing and repent of it we should prepare our hearts to come in reverence and celebrate the lord's table because the sacrifice of calvary is a precious wonderful holy thing and we would not want to approach jesus in such a way that was disrespectful so that's everything you ever wanted to know and some things you didn't want to know about the lord's table and now you have good theology and you know the instruction of the Lord, Pastor Mike is going to come and he's going to lead us in the Lord's table.
As the ushers are preparing the table, please come in and uh, receive your elements and then uh, back to your place and we'll have... Uh,